You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I write the Burnt Toast newsletter. And when you hear this, I will, if all goes according to plan, be sitting on a beach in Thailand. Of course, that means I survived the 25-hour flight over and jet lag with my kids. And honestly, those both feel like very open questions as I'm recording this right now. But anyway, the newsletter and the podcast are both officially on holiday break along with my brain. So you are getting a rerun. I know New Year's is a fraught time for a lot of us. Resolution culture means that diet noise and fitness noise and everything is just turned up to level 1000 right now. And I was thinking about that and remembered this really lovely conversation that Amy Palangian and I had with Christy Harrison on our old podcast, Comfort Food. And I decided that this episode called New Year No Diet would be the perfect rerun to share with all of you this week. It aired on January 13th, 2019. And wow, the world is different, but diet culture has remained so much the same. So if you aren't familiar with Christy, she is an anti-diet nutritionist, a journalist, and host of the beloved Food Psych podcast. She's also the author of the book Anti-Diet and her new book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, comes out the same day as Fat Talk. So we will be celebrating book birthdays together in April, and I'm hoping Christy will be back on the podcast in real time then to talk to us about the new book, which is really cool. I think Christy is just one of the most thoughtful journalists I know. She is truly a calm and reassuring voice in the anti-diet space. So if you are struggling with any version of the New Year's bullshit right now, I think you're going to find this conversation really grounding and helpful. And Burnt Toast will be back next week in your inboxes with an essay on Tuesday, January 10th, and in your podcast feeds with an episode with the great Aubrey Gordon on Thursday, January 12th. I know you don't want to miss any of that, so make sure to sign up for the newsletter at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com and make sure you are subscribed to the podcast in your podcast player so the new episodes automatically download. Now here is 2019 Christy and Amy and me. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Comfort Food. This is the podcast about the joys and meltdowns of feeding our families and feeding ourselves. So happy new year, guys. It's 2019, which kind of blows my mind. Um, And this is our first episode of the new year. So you're probably surrounded with a lot of diet talk this week, um, if not for the past few weeks already. People starting New Year's resolutions, detoxes, new wellness plans, like everything flooding your your email box and your social media feeds. So we are here to help you withstand that onslaught and make this year the year you actually feel good about yourself and your food, no matter what you're eating. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I'm a writer, a contributing editor to Parents Magazine, and author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. And I write about how women relate to food in our bodies in a culture that gives us so many unrealistic expectations about both those things. And I'm Amy Plangian, a writer, recipe developer, and creator of Yummy Toddler Food and Yummy Family Food. And I'm a contributor to All Recipes Magazine, and I love helping parents relax in the daily challenge of feeding their kids. And today we have a very special guest. Joining us is Christy Harrison, an anti-diet dietitian, host of the amazing Food Psych podcast, and the lead character in Chapter 2 of The Eating Instinct. (laughs) So Christy, welcome. Thank you for being here. 
Thank you so much for having me. Why don't you tell us a little more about you for our listeners who might not have encountered your amazing work yet? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I'm Christy Harrison. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist, certified intuitive eating counselor, and the host of Food Psych Podcast, as you said. Uh, And I am also the author of a forthcoming book called Anti-Diet, Why Obsessing Over What You Eat is Bad for Your Health, which will be out late 2019, actually. So in time for the sort of new year and holiday (laughs) season of the the coming year. Excellent. Uh, Can't wait. (laughs) And we're so excited to have you with us today because this, the start of the new year is always feels like such a vulnerable place for so many people, which is, you know, sort of, it's strange because we, most of us know that resolutions don't really stick around and yet there's all of this pressure for us to do it. Um, Can you talk a little bit about like why we all get pulled into this? Yeah, absolutely. I think the real reason we all get pulled into this is what a lot of people call diet culture, which is a system of beliefs that really privileges smaller bodies and stigmatizes larger ones, elevates some foods while demonizing others, and promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status and moral virtue, and oppresses people who don't fit those molds, fit into the cultural ideal of thinness or the cultural ideal of what health, quote unquote, is supposed to look like. So diet culture, you know, that's sort of like a long, like a a lot, lot to unpack there. But basically, this system of beliefs is with us all year round, 24-7, 365. It's present in the media, of course, and that's what often gets the most attention, like the photoshopped, airbrushed images of impossibly thin models. But equally important is the diet industry or what's now known as the wellness industry, which, Virginia, you you write about really um, profoundly, you know, eloquently in your book. And the wellness industry has sort of become the new guise of the diet industry in the 21st century. So we have still the traditional diet industry and now the wellness industry. And we also have just sort of the everyday cultural manifestations of this belief system, which can take the form of like a parent making a negative comment about their child's body size or kids teasing each other for their body size on the playground or um, your coworker making some comment like, oh, are you going to eat that? That has gluten in it. That's terrible for you. You know, like... All these tiny little manifestations. I saw um, a friend of mine was telling me that the TV show Peppa Pig has like a bunch of fat phobia in it. Oh, it really? It breaks my heart because my daughter loves Peppa Pig, but they shame Daddy Pig a lot for his food stuff. It's yeah, it's a really it's a hard one for me. Yeah, it's, it's so <laughs> really upsetting. Painful. Yeah, and it's everywhere. It's in these like cute cartoons, you know, that our kids watch and stuff. So it's right. it's really um, ubiquitous. But New Year is particularly prevalent for diet culture. Diet culture is particularly prevalent in the new year because it's just sort of become the season where the diet industry does its big push to sell you things. You know, the the idea of new year and sort of renewal, I think, lends itself to this concept that, well, now you've just come through the holidays, you've been eating and quote unquote indulging so much that now it's time to like buckle down and really shrink Mm -hmm. your body and make a resolution to, to change this year. And it dovetails nicely with the fact that we know that diets don't actually work long term. And by diets, I really mean everything from traditional sort of Jenny Craig, Weight Watchers, although now they're calling themselves WW for <laughs> wellness, right? Um, <laughs> everything from that to, you know, Whole30, Paleo, Keto, like the things that are, um, that 
hold themselves up as just an eating plan or a template or a protocol or a reset. Like they use all these different words. They say they're not diets, but they actually still fall under the umbrella of diet culture. They actually still are diets by another name. And so this time of year, it's, it's, you know, it's their time for their big sales push, their time to get um, more clients on board. And those things don't actually work long term. So we know the research really shows that um, any sort of diet, whether it's, again, wellness or traditional diet, um, the quote unquote benefits or the, the weight loss effects certainly don't last beyond like about the three to five year mark is when we see the vast majority of people have put back on all the weight that they lost. And oftentimes up to two thirds of the time, people end up regaining more weight than they lost. And so intentional weight loss, whatever, whatever brand, whatever sort of plan you're using, um, doesn't actually have long term effects. It actually results in weight cycling in the long run. I find it so interesting to think about this as like, I mean, a lot of it is tied to the holiday excess, but then like that marketing piece. Yeah. I was going to say that's so interesting because we think of the new year as almost like this, I don't know, for some people it's like a spiritual time or just like a tradition and that it's in fact like actually part of, you know, it's a line item in someone's business plan of like, wait, January is where we do the big push. It's not really this sort of organic thing in the calendar. It's actually very manufactured. Yeah, it's really insidious. It's like taking this thing that can be so beautiful and spiritual and like cultures around the world have a new year tradition, a new year celebration of some kind usually. Right. And there's something really lovely about the idea of like a fresh start or, you know, I'm someone who really enjoys celebrating New Year's just even though I know it's sort of an arbitrary thing, it just feels like a lovely chance to like set an intention for the year. Something about it is appealing, but yeah, that's interesting that it's so industry driven. And just to circle back quickly to the holiday excess thing, because I know a lot of our listeners were probably all coming off that place and the holidays can be such a fraught time for folks with food. Can you talk a little bit as a dietitian, you know, why is it normal to quote indulge at the holidays? Like, why is that not actually like, a, okay, now you've got to fix this thing that you just did? Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, really it is incredibly normal and, and, and part of a balanced and healthy relationship with food to have these holiday moments where you're enjoying foods that you might not have at other times of the year, that you're really partaking in these traditions and celebrating with food and connecting over food. And those things have been part of human culture for millennia. You know, we've mm -hmm. always like, around the world. Again, cultures everywhere have connected over food and had special holiday traditions that involved, you know, particular types of food that you don't necessarily eat the rest of the year or um, that you do, but maybe they're in different configurations or whatever. So um, it's very normal to have that experience. And actually, I think it's, it's really part of a psychologically, you know, mentally healthy relationship with food to have that and to allow yourself to have that and not to feel like you have to be guilty or ashamed or work it off or mm -hmm. Tone for it in some way. Um, and, you know, the problem is, so intuitive eating is, is what I practice as a dietitian and what I teach. And that is really the default mode that kids are all born with. You know, babies are all born. Um, and Virginia, you've talked about this with your daughter sort of getting sidetracked from that pretty early mm -hmm. in her life. But like, you know, at, at first when, when babies come out, they're really programmed to seek out food, to tell you when they're hungry, to stop when they're full, like to be um, seeking out different flavors and textures to the extent that they're developmentally able to. 
and their relationship with food, if if left sort of unmarred by diet culture or by other things like medical trauma or um, food insecurity or things like that that can really interfere with people's relationships with food, if they're just allowed to maintain that intuitive relationship with food their whole lives, people can be incredibly balanced and not have that sort of fraught relationship with food that causes them to feel like the holidays are just a free-for-all, you know? and. And I, I experience this now for myself as an intuitive eater and with my clients where, you know, once you come back around to that intuitive eating that we're all born with, it's like, eh, the holidays aren't a huge deal. You know, like, it's great. I love pumpkin pie. I love having my grandma's or my, my aunt's weird jello salad that she only makes (laughs) for Thanksgiving, you know, like that stuff is awesome. But, you know, other than that, I'm not feeling like I'm eating excessively or um, restricting leading up to the the holiday meal so that I can, you know, stuff myself at the at the meal and then feel uncomfortable. Like it's it's not this sort of um, restrict binge cycle that it right. used to be when I was and when my clients were, you know, really steeped in diet culture. It becomes a much more relaxed, easygoing type of thing. So it really can be this celebration, this this enjoyment, this opportunity to connect with people over food um, without having that extra layer of guilt that diet culture really piles on. And I always think about when I was a kid, like, so I come from a big Italian-American family and at the holidays there was, you know, there was like a ton of food everywhere. But then at the same time, we were like some, for some reason, like not supposed to eat it all. Like there was just this very confusing situation for me. And so like now as a parent, I am very aware of like, we make a special thing. I want my kids to be able to enjoy it without putting all these restrictions, like just confusing the heck out of them. Right, right. Um, The knowing that everyone's so excited to see this food and simultaneously horrified by it is such a confusing message for kids and for all of us. Yeah. It really is. And I feel like our culture sends those mixed messages so much. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like we have so much food advertising and that gets blamed and the food environment gets blamed with the large portion sizes. And, you know, people say that that's the cause of so many health conditions and the quote unquote obesity epidemic in this country. But really, research actually shows that people who are intuitive eaters who have not succumb to diet culture who've not been um, taken away from their body's natural cues about food and and are you know are not fixated on weight and things like that can actually make you know the same choices the same balanced choices that they would make without those sort of cues um, around them so really it's it's you know people can be in an environment with abundant food and still honor their hunger and fullness cues still honor their desires and you know find satisfaction and pleasure in food and connect with other people over food without feeling like they've like gone too far or they have to atone or anything like that I'm glad you brought that up because one thing I see also happening in January is when people are in this atone mindset, they often connect whatever plan they're looking at to health, right? They say, it's oh, it's not really about weight. It's really, I have high blood pressure. Or I'm not sleeping well. Or, you know, they're connecting it to all these health conditions that we link to food and weight. Mm-hmm. Um, so would love for you to talk a little more about why dieting is not the solution if you're struggling with one of those health problems. Yeah, absolutely. It is so common in diet culture to have all kinds of, you know, whatever health condition you might have, anything under the sun is um, pinned on food is like food is the answer. You know, the food is medicine idea is really prevalent in our culture right now. Um, but the problem with that is that a diets don't work long-term, as I mentioned earlier, that we really know the statistics show that the vast majority of people end up regaining all the weight that they lost and also just not being able to stick to whatever diet or plan that they're on because it really takes them away from the sort of normal relationship with food that, um, 
keeps people going that that is you know much easier to stick to over time and and um, psychologically being on a, a diet where you're restricting certain foods is really taxing that sort of willpower that people have to exert to to change their eating and restrict their eating over the long term just doesn't hold up you know because we have an exhaustible supply of willpower and so when we're trying to govern our relationship with food through sheer will it really doesn't work it doesn't last it's not sustainable and actually, we know that weight cycling, which is the inevitable cycles of, of yo-yo dieting that happen because diets don't work and the vast majority of people gain back um, all the weight they lost and oftentimes more, then people are, are doing these weight cycles again and again, often dozens of times throughout their lives. And we know that that's actually an independent risk factor for things like heart disease, blood sugar abnormalities, um, all kinds of conditions that tend to get blamed on weight itself. And in fact, there's research showing that um, the heart risks, the, the excess heart risks that are seen in people in larger bodies can actually all be attributed to weight cycling alone. So not the wow. fact of the larger body, but just to the fact that people in larger bodies are more likely to have dieted more often because of the pressures that they face in diet culture to shrink their bodies. And that in and of itself puts their heart at greater risk. That's pretty mind-blowing. So basically dieting to, quote, improve your health is like you're going to end up doing the opposite. Yep. It's counterproductive. It's counterproductive, you know, not only for physical health, but also for mental health. And, and we know that mental and physical health are very strongly linked so that if you're um, doing something that that negatively affects your mental health, you're actually affecting your overall health as well. And, you know, it's really any sort of diet, any sort of plan or protocol or lifestyle change or whatever you want to call it is actually creating disorder in your relationship with food because, an ordered relationship with food, if you will, is like intuitive eating. It's what we're all born knowing how to do. It's that um, ability to seek pleasure and to have, you know, some consideration for nutrition, but mostly to follow your hunger and fullness cues, to have, you know, seek out pleasure, to seek out balance, um, not to follow diet rules that govern how you eat. Diets take us away from that intuitive relationship with food and create disorder in our relationship with food and create this sense of having to rely on something external to ourselves to govern our eating instead of knowing and trusting that our bodies will take care of this, that our bodies have got this and that we can, you know, really trust ourselves. So when, when we're taking ourselves away from that intuitive relationship with food, we're also creating a lot of mental stress and strain that can additionally impact our physical health as well. And of course, you know, just mental health in general is really important to overall happiness, the way that people parent, having mental health be a priority is really important so that you can actually show up for your kids and be there in your life. And so many of my clients say, and I know that I went through this too in my own experience with disordered eating that, you know, it it really takes away from being able to be present in your life. It's your head is so full of calorie counts and macros and whole 30 rules or whatever it may be that you're you're missing out on the life that's right here, whether that's the mundane stuff like being able to share a meal with your toddler or the bigger stuff like being able to get your career going again or get, you know, um, like have your relationship with your spouse be fulfilling or whatever it may be. You know, there's so many things in our life that we can miss out on when we're so fixated on food that it becomes like this full-time job or at least all-consuming hobby. So Christy, on our podcast, we have what we call is our mama manifesto of feed yourself first. And, you know, we started, Amy and I came up with this because we were talking about how often moms literally don't feed ourselves first because you're so busy, like your two-year-old is like, 
begging Screaming. for Cheerios. And yeah, you haven't even had breakfast yet. And you're kind of throwing food at other people in your house all day long. Um, and then neglecting your own hunger and needs. But, you know, now I'm thinking about it in terms of New Year's. And I'm wondering, you know, what do you think a feed yourself first, well, I won't say diet, but anti-diet should look like. I love that. I love the feed yourself first concept because I think that's an issue for so many people in our society. And so, yeah, it, it's really, you know, I think starting the new year off with an anti-diet is a great um, resolution to have. And I go back and forth on whether I think resolutions are helpful or problematic. You know, I think sometimes mm -hmm. this idea of like new year, new you can be so problematic because it's like you're trying to just, you know, turn into a different person or something. And that's never going to, A, be sustainable or B, actually be caring for yourself. You know, it's not very self-caring to want to erase who you are completely, right? It's not very self-accepting. Um, so I right. think uh, I actually uh, used to write for Refinery29 and they did a great package a couple of years back called New Year Do You, which is like, you know, just all about like, <laughs> you do you, right? Like you, oh, you like take care of yourself, like, you know, deepen your own connection with yourself. Um, so that's kind of what I would advocate is, you know, for a, a New Year Do You kind of thing where you're working to try to really connect more with yourself, maybe have a resolution to do that. I think a, a, an anti-diet approach really fits well there. It's, you know, it's a great idea to instead of make a resolution to try to lose weight or to, you know, quote unquote, get healthy by cutting out all kinds of different foods or um, going on the latest, you know, plan, template, protocol, lifestyle change, whatever, um, really to think about just getting back in touch with your own body's needs and doing your best to reject diet culture and reject the diet mentality. So really like an anti-diet start to the new year, because research actually shows that when people can reject those diet rules and not be governed by them, they're on a, a much better path in terms of their physical health, their mental health, you know, their cholesterol levels are lower, their um, levels of disordered eating are lower like their self-esteem and their their mental health are better and all these benefits. Um, so really the first step with getting back into that intuitive eating practice is unearthing all of those diet rules and regulations that you've been holding on to that you might not even know. It, they can be so subtle. You know, it's like you don't have to be on an official diet to still be dieting. You don't have to be on an official diet to still have the diet mentality and to still be governed by diet rules. Oftentimes it's vestiges of diets past or it's it's things you've picked up from magazines or that your mom said to you when you were a little kid that stuck with you. Like it's all these different things that swirl around in our head about food and bodies that make it really hard to, to have this authentic connection with, um, with food and our bodies. So, you know, really starting to unearth that. And, and I like to do and recommend a practice to my clients where you journal every day about this stuff, you know, make a little bit of time. Maybe it's five minutes in the morning or in the evening or while your kid's taking a nap or something, um, where you just sort of catalog what's come up in your head around food and body thoughts in the past 24 hours and try to think about what, where that actually comes from and whether you want to believe it or not, whether it's something that you're ready to start to let go of and what might be an alternative to that kind of thought. So for example, one thing that I see a lot in my clients is that 
they won't eat enough during the day. And I think that's very true with parents in general is like you're taking care of your kid. And like you said, you you put them first. You, you know, don't your eat Your lunch is the leftovers and, that yep, they don't eat. The totally. crusts of their sandwich. <laughs> and like that's not a satisfying lunch, you know. So by the time dinner rolls around or evening rolls around, maybe you finally put the kids to bed and you're just like, I'm ravenous, you know. <laughs> eat everything yes. in the house. And people often blame themselves for that and think I have no willpower, I have no self-control. That's actually diet mentality talking. That's, you know, that thought that's shaming you for eating like that is actually the diet mentality saying that like you're supposed to be controlling yourself, you're supposed to be quote unquote good. And actually what it is is that you didn't eat enough during the day. You didn't care for yourself and nourish yourself as you needed. And so of course your body's just going to be like, well, let me get it by hook or by crook, like whatever right. you need to do um, to get fed. And so you know, a, a solution to that might be, like you said, feed yourself first, you know, making sure that you have a plan for how you're going to feed yourself as well as your children throughout the day. And also maybe having snacks while they're asleep, while they're taking naps or whatever, just as you would probably pack snacks for them when you're going out, right? To make sure they don't have a meltdown in the grocery store or whatever. Uh, pack snacks for yourself too, you know, make sure that you're nourishing yourself throughout the day as well. And what do you do about all of like the noise that we're hearing on social media and like in real life from friends or family members who are sort of talking about their cleanse or their detox or even like a doctor who might say something unhelpful about your weight? I know at one of the companies I used to work for, there was always this um, challenge of like a weight loss challenge. And if you didn't join, you had to join it in order to like get a discount on your health insurance. Oh it was God. like this very convoluted thing. And um, But like there are all of those factors that come up in the course of our daily life that can be hard to filter out. Yeah, you're just surrounded by other people's diets, even if you're trying to choose a different path. I know. That's why diet culture is so hard. And that's why it's actually why I started talking about it, you know, because I think it's one thing to be an individual trying to recover and doing your best to to get over diets on your own or with the help of a professional. But then if you're having to go back out into this culture that's constantly pushing diets in your face again, it's like, okay, well, <laughs> got your work cut out for you, you know? So I really think it's kind of a social responsibility as well as, you know, it's not an individual responsibility, really. There's only so much we can do as individuals. Um, and I think we need a huge cultural change. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, you know, there are things that, there are ways to be resilient to this culture until we have the major cultural shift that we need to have. Um, one thing is having a very liberal delete and block policy or unfollow <laughs> policy on your social media. Like I'm all about, you know, unsubscribing from the email lists of people who are trying to sell you cleanses. Um, unfollowing the people who are doing beach body and trying to like message you to get you to be on their team or whatever. Like, you know, unfollow, unsubscribe, just kind of spend some time scrolling through your feeds and see if, you know, see who makes you feel bad about yourself or see who makes you feel like, oh, maybe I should really try that thing that she's doing mm -hmm. and they're doing. Mm -hmm. and, you know, like if, if that comes up for you, just identify that, notice that as like, okay, that's a diet culture trigger that I actually don't need in my life. And so I'm going to choose to unfollow this person, even if it's a good friend. Like you can actually mute people on Facebook without unfriending them, you know, so they'd never have to know that you unfollowed them, uh, that their, their newsfeed or whatever. And if it's in person, how do you handle it? I mean, I have to confess to a total fail on this front. At my Thanksgiving dinner, uh, some relatives started estimating the calorie counts in the whole meal. And 
I was like so shocked that it came up that I didn't speak out. And I felt like afterwards, like, oh my gosh, like I read this whole book about this. Like, this is my platform. <laughs> like, but I think I was so surprised they brought it up with me in earshot. I was just like, what is happening right now? Mm-hmm. But I did think afterwards, like, it's also very socially awkward. And, you know, for people who do this work, you can say, like, hey guys, remember this work that I do. But for people who, you know, are just going through their normal life and this is just something they're struggling with, like, how do you advocate for yourself in, a group conversation or in, you know, when all your coworkers are gathered around the water cooler trading these diet tips. Yeah, it is really socially awkward. And I want to just like empathize with that and say, you know, it's not always going to be easy. You're not always going to find the right words. You might not always be able to challenge it. And that's okay. Like, don't feel like you have this responsibility to do it every single time because we all have, you know, our own stuff going on. And sometimes, yeah. I mean, even I'm like, you know, here's somebody saying something and I'm like, oh, I just don't have the energy to deal with it. I just right can't now. do like, this I, one. So, yeah, I think it's it's a matter of, you know, a couple things. Um, one is, you know, simply just leaving the room if you can or leaving the conversation or changing the subject. That's a little easier to do if it's a bigger gathering where you can, mm-hmm. like, you know, sneak off somewhere and nobody's going to, you know, be like, oh, wow, why'd she just walk out of this room or whatever. Um, but you can um, always do that. You know, you have the, the ability to leave. You can also set boundaries with people in your life to the extent that you feel comfortable with them, to the extent that you have a close enough relationship to do that, you can say like, you know, I find that it's really easier to start with yourself and start with the personal rather than getting into like the science or, you know, talking about why diets are bad and and shaming the other person for being on a diet or something, but putting it on yourself and saying like, for me, honestly, like diet talk is really hurtful and problematic because I've had a, a really hard time with diets. I've had really disordered relationship with food over the course of my life. I'm trying to heal from these issues and hearing people talk about diets is just really triggering. It's really harmful for me right now. So I'm just, you know, asking if we could please like not talk about that. I know that you're doing your paleo thing and you're really excited about it or whatever. Um, that's great for you, but I just, you know, like let's, let's talk about something else. And so if, if it's a close enough friend where you can say something like that, I think that can be really helpful. If it's someone that you're a little less close to, maybe a, a small sort of seed is the only thing, you know, you can do. So saying something like, oh, well, you know, diets have never worked for me or yeah, I find that it's just, um, I, you know, I'd rather, uh, allow myself to eat everything and enjoy myself. And I find that it's a lot, a lot healthier for me in the long run to do that or whatever, you know, say something small in the moment that might not, um, totally address the situation, but might at least plant the seed or open the door to a larger conversation and know also that, the people in your life who are really caught up in diet culture can often be kind of defensive about it. And especially if they're really on a soapbox about something at the moment, it's like, this is the way, you know, they can be evangelists about it sometimes. And so if that's the case with someone you're talking to, probably realize that they're probably going to be defensive. They're going to argue with you. It might not be the best conversation. And so that might be a, a situation where you just say, you know, I'd, I'd like to change the subject. I'm really uncomfortable talking about diets or you excuse yourself and leave the room. Something that I really like actually is to someone that you're close enough to or a family member say, you know, I love you no matter what size your body is or no matter what you're eating. And there's so much more about you that I really value than than how you look or the size of your body. Like, tell me about this thing that you enjoy talking about, you know, tell me about how your career is going, whatever, changing the subject is something you know that they're going to resonate with. I was going to say that changing the subject approach, um, 
which I use on my children many times when they're complaining about what's for dinner. But it is very effective um, during like dinner parties. A lot of the times if you're sitting around a table and there's, you know, more than four people, the conversation sort of gets a little bit random anyway. And so just like toss something else out. Mm. Just, you know, um, it probably won't seem that awkward to other people. It might just seem like you have something that you really want to talk about. So. You guys are making me feel better because that's basically what I did. But I felt like from this sort of panicky place of like, I should have made a bigger statement, but <laughs> right. just change the topic can be really helpful. Yeah, totally. Sometimes that's all you can do. You know? Yeah. And Christy, I know you talked a little bit um, about your concerns about resolutions in general, which I, I definitely share. But I am wondering, you know, do you feel like it's possible for folks to set intentions for the year or say you want to do something like, run a marathon or, you know, learn to swim or do some new body or food related thing that's not necessarily weight related, although it would be easy for it to turn into a weight related thing. Is it possible to, you know, how can you sort of adopt a goal like that for yourself and keep the weight stuff out of it? Is that, is that something you can do? Yeah, it's really challenging, I think, in diet culture to adopt goals like that and not have the weight stuff creep in. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of being in continual dialogue with yourself and sort of taking a critical look at why do I really want to do this? You know, like, mm -hmm. Is it for a sense of a sense of accomplishment? Is it for a sense of, you know, something to to do that makes me feel really present and sort of like a meditative practice that I enjoy? Is it um, to prove something to myself? You know, like all of those reasons could potentially be valid, you know, valid and something that you want to pursue. But is it, is there something in there about wanting to change my body? Is there something in there about feeling like I need to be smaller or I need to be more quote unquote toned or more fit? And like, what is that about? You know, what is that really about? Am I feeling like the body I'm in right now isn't good enough? If if that's the case, I would recommend not actually pursuing that goal until the motivation around changing your body becomes like way down on the list. You know, in diet culture, it's very hard for it not to be present at all, especially at first when you're working on changing your relationship with these things. But mm -hmm. um, if you know, your motivation for physical activity is like, number one, to feel good. Number two, to shrink my body. Number three, to be more toned, to look better in a bikini. I would say like push pause on that activity and, you know, step away and do some work on your relationship with exercise, your relationship with your body, your relationship with food, and then see if you can come back to it where, you know, maybe those ideas are still in the back of your mind. Maybe that's like, seven or eight down the list of why you want to do this thing, but that, you know, it's not the main driving force. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And I found that in my own relationship with exercise, I will say like that was a huge key to healing it because I was in my disordered eating days, very much an over-exerciser, very much like using exercise to punish myself or to mm -hmm. try to make up for what I, you know, for the binges that I was doing, which were really just due to not eating enough throughout the day, you know, the rest of the time. Um, and when I was, when I really was focused on trying to heal my relationship with exercise and not be so instrumental and disordered about it, I found that practicing that and saying like, you know what, I'm not going to let myself even do this yoga class. Um, if the, you know, primary motivation or secondary motivation is like, oh, I'm feeling kind of, you know, my pants are tight today. I need to get back into the yoga practice. Like, no, nope, mm. I'm going to like spend that time doing some sort of, you know, self-development work or, or just something that makes me feel good that has nothing to do with my body. That's such a smart way to, to think about it. I don't think I've ever heard anyone explain it like that. So thank you. 
I'm like thinking about all of the things that I've done in January's past. <laughs> <laughs> well, it requires a lot of radical honesty with yourself. I mean, I've definitely done it where I'm like, no, 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 I'm sure it's just that I want to swim across the Hudson River. I'm sure I just want to, which it really was in large part, I wanted to show I could swim across the Hudson River. But for sure, number two on the list was I had just had a baby and, you know, was struggling with all of the postpartum body image stuff. And so, yeah, it's tough to kind of sit with that and parse through like what um, what is really motivating you. But that's really smart advice. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been a really awesome way to start the new year. And hopefully we'll um, hear from a lot of folks with their stories and maybe they'll have some questions for us. So can you tell our listeners where they can find you um, if they want to listen to your podcast or follow you online? Absolutely. Yeah. So people can find me. Uh, the best way is on my website. It's christyharrison.com. And from there, you can find pages for the podcast and my writing and other work. Um, and you can also just type in food psych to whatever podcast provider you're listening to this on. Food psych is spelled F-O-O-D space P-S-Y-C-H. There's no E on the end. That would be food psyche. So it's <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm there. I produce new episodes every week and I'm on Instagram and Facebook and all the social media as well. But you can find that all uh, on my website, christyharrison.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Christy. This has been so great to talk with you. Thank you so much. It's great to talk with you both. For this week's Unrelated, I wanted to talk about the last week of my life where I've basically questioned all of the choices that led me to become a parent. Um <laughs> <laughs> because our baby Beatrix, who's 13 months old, has had a terrible ear infection. And I want to be clear right now, I have had a kid with true medical catastrophes. Ear infections are not life or death. They are not a serious medical issue. So please don't think I'm trying to like equate our trauma to any serious thing because it wasn't. But it's so aggravating <laughs> because she was pretty miserable, you know, dealing with fevers and a snotty nose. And then it went to an ear infection and she hates taking her amoxicillin. But the big thing was she really stopped eating. And it was so interesting because, of course, again, I've had the more severe version of this. But to suddenly have my baby who from birth has been a very food-motivated child and just, you know, happily eats everything. I mean, solid food went out of the window on day one. She was, like, not interested in breakfast, lunch, or dinner, like, you know, throwing food off her high chair, just totally re refusing. And Did then you know she was sick at that point? We knew she had a really snotty nose. Okay. But I don't think she had broken a fever yet. The appetite went away pretty quickly. Like she'd had a cold for about a week, and it was like getting, you know, like the snottiness was getting grosser, not less gross. Um, and so then day one, last Monday, she like just shut down on solid foods. And then by day two, she was rejecting her bottles too. And that's like even scarier because at first you're like, yeah, solid food, whatever. She's got formula. It'll be fine. And then when she started pushing away the bottles, she'd have like an ounce, maybe two ounces and push them away. It just reminded me how nerve-wracking it is when yeah. your kid won't eat. And I know she's been growing very well. I know she's got reserves. Like, again, not a crisis situation. Um, it just really, yeah, drove home for me how unsettling it is. And it gave me kind of renewed empathy whenever parents talk about, like, oh, but my kid's really not eating, really not eating. Like, it is – it really gets you. Gets you right in the – in the gut kind of, of, of fear about your kid. Um, yeah, we had something similar um, with Tula who basically had a cold for like a solid month 
and would like occasionally spike like 102 fever and then she'd like be fine two hours later. And so we had all these days where I'd keep her home from daycare, of course. And then like by like 10 a.m. she was like bouncing off the walls. Like derailing your work day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And like, and she's old enough that I sort of thought, I kept asking her like, do your ears hurt? Like how, like does your head hurt? But like she, you know, she's old enough that she can talk really well and she's like pretty eloquent for a two year old, but like she didn't have the words to explain. Yeah, they can't always express yeah. that's I've definitely noticed that even with a pretty verbal kid, they can't always express pain or where the pain is. Right. Or like these sort of like yeah, it's hard for them to get that across. So we had a, a number of dinners where she just like wanted someone to hold her and would just cry. And it was so um it just it's, it was not her personality, and I was not prepared for it. Yep, and it was like yeah, totally like two week. nights in a row, and I was like, "What's happened to our child?" And like, is she ever going to come back? Can I have her back? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want the nice kid back. This one is this one's really hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, so some things I did that did help because I mean, Beatrix then basically did not eat proper meals. Like I would say, she was having you know on a normal day, she drinks like still around twenty ounces of formula or it's like formula and regular milk, we're kind of transitioning anyway. Um, and this week she was like eight or less per day, like sometimes like six ounces, like that was, you know, so it was a pretty big drop off. Um, but she did still go for water in her sippy cup. So I knew she was staying hydrated. And as long as your baby's making wet diapers, you don't have to worry too much about the dehydration. So um, she was still drinking water. And then we had some luck with things like popsicles um, and fruit. Like she would go for fruit, like, you know, strawberries. I think probably it was cold and a lot of water in it again. Um, And then, you know, I really just didn't push it very hard one way or the other because I think it is important that you can have faith that, you know, like this is temporary. They're going to get their appetite back. And I think what can go off the rails in these situations is when parents freak out, again, very understandably, and push too hard on the food. And then, especially with this age group, you're really at risk for setting up a power struggle that could stay with you long after the illness. Like you can really get yourself into a bad pattern. Yeah. I was going to say like, what was it like when she started eating again? Did you have, like, were there any issues with, like, any habits that she'd picked up? The biggest thing that we're going to have to reset is holding her during meals because she um, because she was so miserable and not eating, I would she would scream, and so I would take her out of the high chair and then basically, just like you said, like, hold her while she sobbed while I tried to eat yeah. my dinner. It was a fun week, you guys. I loved it a lot. <laughs> Um, children are a gift. Um, but now, even though she now does really want to eat again, like that potato when it came back was like gangbusters. She'll sit there, inhale all her food. And then as soon as she's done, wants to scream, come on my lap and then eat off my plate. Cause that was the other thing because yeah. I was like letting her get in whatever I could. I was le- letting her like eat off my plate, use my fork, um, you know, whatever, when she did show some interest in food because we wanted to get a few bites in here and there. And now she thinks that that's like how we eat, which is not. <laughs> and so it's so I interesting that we had such similar experiences with like the year age gap in between. Cause Tula, like when she's done, she like looks at me, she's like, Are you done? Can I sit with you? Are you done, Daddy? Can I sit with you? Who can I sit with? Like, whose lap is free? <laughs> and Beatrix just goes, Up, up, up. <laughs> Yeah, so that's cool. So this will keep happening. Cool. Well, I'm excited. <laughs> well, Thanks I think it, it's only happening with Tula because of she was sick too. So, but we are like very firm. You cannot sit in our lap while we are eating. Um, and so she, if she's done, she and 
you know, obviously (laughs) this didn't exactly happen when she was sick, but we're firm about it now that when she's finished, she has to get down and go do something or she can sit next to us on a little chair or like somehow not on our bodies if we still have food on our plate. (laughs) So Yeah, that's what we're going to have. And I'm just like, I haven't quite had the willpower yet to muscle through the three nights of crying that are going to ensue while I get us back on schedule. (laughs) It Um, might only take one. Who knows? That's very optimism of you. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'll report back. But yeah. Meantime, she's better. She's eating. She's happy again. But yeah, it is it is amazing. And so, these winter months are tough with the colds and ear yeah. infections and everything that go around. So, yeah. yeah one other thing I want to say is that, uh, like, trust your gut with this stuff because I really was like, I'm going to take her to the clinic, and then someone in my life was like, eh, I don't know. I th- she seems fine. And so I like canceled our appointment. And then two days later, she was still like spiking a fever. And I think, you know, the doctors are always like, just wait, like see what happens in a few days. And I think if you're really worried, just like make an appointment, pay your mm-hmm. copay, just, yeah. just do it. I agree. Because the other thing about Beatrix's ear infection is she never grabbed at her ears. So right. I hadn't even thought of ear infection. We just were taking her in because she'd spiked this fever. And so I was starting to worry about, you know, well, you know, what if we did pick up the flu despite having the flu shots or what if, you know, it's one of these other things. Um, so it was actually incredibly reassuring to know it was just an ear infection, as horrific as that is. <laughs> um, so, you know, yeah, I agree. Like, go and see the doctor, get the reassurance that it's not, um, you know, A, because you don't want to miss it if it is something serious. And B, even if it isn't anything serious, it'll just help you keep it in perspective yep. when you're doing the day-long clinging, screamy toddler thing. Um, that like, okay, this is terrible, but it's not life or death. And that's good to know. Always. <laughs> Always good to know. So courage to all of the moms and dads listening as we carry on through the germy times and hopefully it'll be spring soon. Yep. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player. Leave us a rating and review. Those really help people find the show. And we've got Aubrey Gordon coming up next Thursday. You don't want to miss it. You can also consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. That's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lip. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.